This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. Uh, my name's Andrew. Really hitting the that schwa on the end of my voice this week. Not sure why, but uh, I fell off a cliff chasing the Roadrunner. Apparently, <laughs> one of, fell in one of those Acme black holes that they sell. <laughs> that- I, I thought I was running. I thought I was running into a rock with a with a tunnel painted on it but then i ran into the actual tunnel and now i'm in an alternate dimension did you have we're going to talk about the tiger's wife by Teo obrecht or obrecht excuse me in a second um did you have acmes growing up the grocery store oh no 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 we were we were in ohio so we had meyer we had kroger those are the big boys so walmart supercenter started being a thing mm. as they sort of expanded and consumed everything Okay, yes, well, that's true. Um, I don't remember if Big Bear was groceries. I think maybe it was. I don't remember. Because it, it would be weird to name a department store Big Bear, right? <laughs> yes, I'm conflating <laughs> the defunct Big Bear with the with the Peebles that was in Mount Vernon, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, so we had, we had Acme grocery stores in uh, our neck of the woods in the Philly Burbs. Don't and, you mean Acme? Yeah, a- Acme. The um, Acme. And it was always confusing to me to then see the 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 uh, coyote buying like bombs and stuff from Acme. Uh, yeah, because they don't sell that stuff there. Not to my knowledge. It was maybe you need to go to like the the original Acme, and they have mm. more like merchandise that all the other stores don't. Have. <laughs> that's very possible. Um, that's you know you could just go to a Walmart now for that stuff. I guess. Anyway, we're going to talk about a book this week that I have never read before, and that Andrew's going to listen to. Me? I'm going to listen to you talking about it. I'm not going to listen to the book. Oh, and then yes. I'll interject with some research that I had and like any hilarious things that I have to say and. And you all at home just get to sit through. <laughs> yeah, you have to now. Now that you're listening, you have to. Yeah, you're contractually obligated to start a podcast that you start. Uh, the Tiger's Wife was a Patreon recommendation from Grayson. Thank you, Grayson. Um, Your nephew? No, Grayson. It's a different person. Okay. Um, uh, she said, I love Overdue an awful lot, and I'm excited to get to be a patron. Um Craig editorial. Find out more at patreon.com slash overdue pod. I'd love to eventually hear your thoughts on The Tiger's Wife by Taya Albrecht. Uh, So I guess that's my Patreon rec. That's all they said. So that eventually in there. Yep. That sort of acknowledgement that there's a 18 month lead time. We work through these at a pace. Um, But what is this book? I'll just read the, the blurb here. Yeah, blurred me. Um, In a Balkan country mending for more Natalia, a young doctor is compelled to unravel the mysterious circumstances surrounding her beloved grandfather's recent death. Searching for clues, she turns to his worn copy of The Jungle Book and the stories he told her of his encounters over the years with the deathless man, in quotes. But most extraordinary of all is the story her grandfather never told her, the legend of the tiger's wife. 
So that's what we're going to get into today <laughs> together. So that hints at the my understanding of the structure of this book, which is some sort of grounded chapters dealing with Natalia, the main character, and then a bunch of like magical realism stuff. Yeah. And then and, and the reviews I read mm-hmm. said magical realism, even though, and I know that we are guilty of this too, you can't just call whenever something is fiction, magical realism. <laughs> That's true. And I also think that there's a specific form of like folkloric myth making that is happening in those magical realism chapters that is not quite the same thing that other magical realist books we have read are doing well and we can talk about um how uh Aubrey's background works yeah. into that because i think it does maybe a little bit well hit but me with some talk- of that yeah yeah let's talk about taya albrecht she was born in 1985 in belgrade uh it was then uh, part of yugoslavia today it's modern day serbia mm. do you know that belgrade has been battled over in 115 wars and raised to the ground 44 times oh my god <laughs> that's a lot of times I assume it's a, a, an economically convenient like port or something, and so that's why you keep building it up over and over again. Oh, but, just people just want to live where they live, too. Yeah, poor Belgrade. Ugh. So she, her family, uh, left. So the the main reference point to know about for our conversation, I think this this region of the world has often been fought over, but. Um, we're mostly thinking about the Yugoslav Wars that happened between 1991 and 2001, following um, uh, Yugoslavia's breakup in 1992. Uh, collectively, these conflicts are described as, quote, Europe's deadliest conflicts since World War II, uh, killing around 140,000 people. And they are marked by genocide, ethnic cleansing, and other war crimes, including the Bosnian Genocide, which is the first formally classified European genocide since World War II. So neat, neat. Um, but yeah, so her family left after those wars began, though they were not in any immediate danger themselves. It was kind of a precautionary uh, migration. Um, she took Obrecht, her maternal grandparents' last name, after her grandfather died in 2006. I believe he asked her on his deathbed to write using it, and then she decided to legally change it also. Hmm. Okay. Um, her original last name, I could not find a pronunciation guide for anywhere, so I'm not going to embarrass myself. Okay. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, so her first book is The Tiger's Wife, published in 2011. Um, her second, uh, called Inland, was released in 2019, and it's sort of a riff on the American re- Western genre. Okay. I think there there aren't no sort of fantastical elements to that. There ain't no fantastical but parts it, of that one. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, she teaches fiction at Hunter College. She's published uh, multiple stories, and both fiction and nonfiction. And according to The Guardian, a piece in The Guardian that I read after Inland came out, she has not published at least two drafts of other fully completed novels. Okay, sure. Which I both can and cannot imagine doing myself, <laughs> depending. Like, on the one hand, I did all this work. On the other hand, I am deeply allergic to people looking at stuff that oh, I'm doing sure. until I think it's done. Yes, uh so yeah that's the that's the main stuff like at least for um purposes of of this book like it's so it deals 
Um, Tiger's wife deals with like her grandfather's death and, and the way that made her feel. It deals with like her family history in this area of the world, even though they're like the, the country that everything is occurring in, in this book is fully fictional. Yes. Is, and almost, yeah. and almost I'm, pr- I was really trying to keep track of it. I don't even think it's ever named like cities have names. Yeah. Everything I saw just referred to it as a Balkan country. Yeah. It's very deliberately, um, opaque and kind of like what is, where exactly are we? Like, I think there are references to Yugoslavia and Turkey. Um, but it is kind of like, she is channeling the history of this part of the world uh, without deliberately picking like a historical moment. Um, mm-hmm. I was trying to, I was just trying to find a quote that I have where she talks about um, not wanting to like, she wanted to know that there were sides to this conflict and she does have characters in this book comment on being from different sides of a border and mm-hmm. um, people feeling, you know, rightfully, rightfully wronged by people on, on the other side. Um, but she is trying not to like, she never shows the start of the conflict. She never like, it's like, and, and this group is responsible for this. It is yeah, very right, much right. about the, people who lived through or did not live through the war and the people now who are like carrying on after it and very much about the, the, the state of this region and, and like a few villages uh, decades beforehand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, but to bring it back around to the, the thing you were talking about, about like, is this a magical realism? Mm. Did she do a magical, did she do realism? a magical yes realism? No. <laughs> um, she, so about the um, specific Balkan flavor that this story has. She says in an interview that she did with uh, Radio Free Europe, I'm tied to the Balkan way of thinking and especially to the Balkan way of thinking about stories. I think there's a concept of a Balkan story. Even small stories are somehow big, huge. There's a moment in a Balkan story where the line between mythology, legend, and story become irrelevant. Somehow that mythology becomes a truth in itself and it becomes a very personal truth. The way in which you receive a story becomes your truth and then it becomes the truth for the person you're telling the story to. That is very much our way and it attracts me very much. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> you did. You, I was hoping you have more something to say. No, about sorry, that. but like, so if you're thinking about our boy Gabriel Garcia, Marquez, yeah, sure, he was like the you know the the original bad boy of magical realism. <laughs> His yeah, like if you if you think about like archetypal magical realism, it's like a you know a girl cried so many tears that. It made a whole ocean, and it just feels very big, very mm. fast, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess. And she seems to be making a case for a story that is, like, more focused and, like, smaller, but is still, like, telling a larger truth, if you will. Ooh, perhaps. Mm-hmm. It also seems to be a, a particular flavor of how a community... uh takes a story or starts telling that story to itself. So the titular story, the tiger's wife um, that she relays to the reader over the course of the book, even though her grandfather never told it to her um, is like the story of this town where her grandfather grew up 
and it has been relayed over the decades now and has become this uh, like reason that kids don't go out when it's dark and mm-hmm. reasons why people are distrustful of certain others and it has taken on a quality of myth but the way that it's told in the book is like there's a couple things that are like did they happen people mm-hmm. thought the tiger was a demon did mm-hmm. did the lady start to have sex with the tiger who knows like we don't That's, know mm, okay um and <laughs> The and there's a a turn there in the middle. There's a guy who may or may not like when he dies. Like he may he might have become a bear right when he died. It's Mm. that part's a little unclear to me. Um, But also, it is unclear to our narrator Natalia. It is like told to her, and at this point, the story has been told so many times with that particular truth in it that that is just what happened. So to this, I think the. That magical realism thing where, like, your internal emotions kind of have an outsized effect on the physical world. I'm also thinking of Like Water for Chocolate, uh, Mm -hmm. which is another book that does that. That's not really present here. It's more that some supernatural elements might be taking place, but they are really drawn to um, and attached to these kind of core myths that people are telling each other. Sure. Um, which which so like, is in stark contrast to, as you said, the present tense story of Natalia's grandfather has passed away. She is a young doctor in this Balkan country. She is going to go across the border to give some kids some vaccines and stuff and an orphanage. But she has just gotten word that her grandfather's dead and some of his stuff is missing. Like that's so it, just yeah. just like off the bat, it sounds like even though, even though the. Um, the conflict, like the Balkan conflict, is a is a backdrop for this story. That it's not ne- that's not necessarily what it's about so much. Like it sounds like maybe it's more personal to Natalia. Where the it took me a minute to remember the name of this book because it the episode we did was back in like the two forties somewhere. Like it was a <laughs> while ago. <laughs> but I read um, Girl at War by Sarah Novick, which yep. is another book from someone in this, you know, approximate age cohort dealing with the wars in this part of the world. Um, and it was, yeah, it was much more rooted in the conflict and, and it was a, like a child's understanding of the conflict. So again, not dealing over much, I don't think in like blame or like, X person started or like the politics of it. Yeah, sure. Yes. Right. But more concerned with what it felt like to live through it. And it doesn't sound like that's as much what's going on in this. No, there's one passage. There's a few passages that are like nodding towards the violence of war. Uh, In particular, there's a passage about two thirds or three quarters of the way through it. And I think the chapter is called the bombing and it is about when the city that she lives in was being bombed during, you know, the beginning part of the war, I think. Um, and you get what, here's what you're told about that whole section. It's like, it is mostly about how after a few days of um, public notices about air raids and things and some evacuations, but really not that many, uh, People just kind of start trying to live again. There's a yeah, right. an undercurrent. I okay. I read this book here in the year 2021. There's a lot in this book about ways in which 
um, during a harrowing public crisis of some kind that has completely transformed the way everyone lives. Uh, uh-huh. I have no idea what you're. I I don't know where you're going with this. So this is really, this yes. is really. I'm on the edge of my seat. Uh, that people might pursue some sense of normalcy and continue doing things that they were doing already, just to feel like to to deal with the feeling of uncertainty about what is happening. Um, yeah, so, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, it was really, I don't know why I've it was never, so resonant for me. This. It was <laughs> yeah. strange. Um, and so earlier chapters talk about when they're, when she was a kid in school and she's like a teenager and uh, right as things start, like maybe some kids like don't come into school anymore because they're either like something happened to them or their family decided to like flee and now they're refugees or whatever. And she's just trying to go to science class and like learn. But then also there's this like 12 month period where there's a war on becomes kind of an excuse to be a rebellious teen. Like the world's a mess, man. I'm going to get into smoking and Bob Dylan and stuff. There's a pandemic dad. I'm going to GameStop. Yeah. Or there's a pandemic. I'm going to like, just like, I don't know. I don't need to do the normal. St- There's like this tension. I'm gonna go between- to Florida for spring break. <laughs> well, it's it's that. It's like there. It's like there is no law down in Florida. It, it, it's a little bit of that, but it is also the like. Well, I can be whoever I want to be now. Like the rules don't apply the same way. And I there like there's this like I don't know shapeless mass of time that she describes but it's that, the it's the like the crisis opportunity yeah mm-hmm. rubric thing yeah. like. Society as we know it has collapsed. What if we, because that's happened already, what if we used it as an excuse to imagine something different from what we had before? And and the version we get is her being a teenager and like kind of hanging out with dudes that she shouldn't and uh, being a little rebellious while her grandfather, she lives with her, I think her mother and her grandfather and her grandmother, um, her grandfather, it doesn't hit home to her until like, her grandfather, who's a doctor, he teaches at a university. Um, eventually, someone comes by, like from the government, and mm-hmm. starts asking questions. Specifically, his wife. I think he is Catholic or Christian, at least. And his wife, um, Natalia's grandmother, is Muslim from another region across the border now. They're asking questions about him, and he ends up not having his public practice anymore. So he's doing all of these private house calls with people that Natalia certainly now realizes, wow, that's really dangerous. He could get disappeared. He could be out on the street when a bomb hits. Like Mm -hmm. now it comes actually hits her while he is trying to pursue his normalcy and kind of keep things going. Um, So you get the war a little bit that way. And then as I was starting to describe before I let my own self get derailed, um, you get this bombing sequence where the bombs are happening People like after a few days, people are like, I'm still going to go get coffee at the coffee shop. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to do that. But then this other switch happens where the closest you get to like seeing someone maybe get uh, suffer as a result of the war is like people start going on mass to public places, almost like they're going there to guard it. Like you might go to the bridge with a large group of people. like theoretically on the on the principle that the other side is not going is not actually trying to kill civilians it might kill civilians but they're 
claiming at least that their goal is they're trying to take out, you know, strategic points and apply pressure okay. through a bombing campaign. Mm-hmm. So you get these passages where like everybody goes to the zoo, and the zoo be, the zoo is very important <laughs> in this book. That the grandfather mm-hmm. really loves the tiger. He, he it's the whole part of his backstory. But like people go to the zoo and they dress up as their favorite animals, and they're just in this big like crowd so that like they won't just kill all the civilians at the zoo right and it's this like i don't know it's this interesting way that the that the city is kind of like acting out against this conflict what you do get that is violent is that when bombs start dropping a bunch of animals in the zoo just go bananas like some of them yeah, just some of them just die some of them just die some of them start eating their own legs some of them start like eating their own children or their mates and like going amok and it's it is described with way more detail than any sort of violence against people as a result of the war Mm -hmm. and it carries into another thematic thing throughout the book where albrecht will like cut to not like a full-on cut to like let's go to tiger vision right now but she does use animals throughout the book to get at some like i don't know some of the cruelty of war and the emotional impact of it. We get a whole passage about the city when it was bombed in the 40s and the tiger that later becomes the tiger of the tiger's wife is walking through the like shelled town. And like that's how we experience the horrors of war of this like lone tiger walking through a city trying to get something to eat uh, after he's lived his whole life in a zoo. Yeah. And doesn't this, know how to be a tiger. This is all just remind. So every Saturday night since the pandemic really settled in, yeah. Craig has run a like, sort of a bar trivia style uh, yeah. quiz night. I don't know where you're going with this. Pals and acquaintances. Last night he oh, played. Man. Um. He played a bunch of animal sounds, and yeah. the questions were, tell me which animal this is that's making this sound. Uh-huh. And everybody's animals, multiple <laughs> animals, started freaking out because suddenly their owners, like, TVs and computers were playing all these weird animal sounds out of nowhere. Uh-huh. And that's all I can think about with you telling me about how animals respond to war is, like... They're sensitive creatures. We yeah, love them. Just like they, they know when something's up. They're always the first to know. Yeah, they are. And we do care for them. Um, so I, I had some quotes. There's an interview in the back of the book that uh, Albrecht did with Jennifer Egan, who wrote uh, Visit from the Goon Squad. Ah, yes. Perennial Craig Frey yeah, favorite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Albrecht said, it was fun to write from the point of view of the tiger and emotionally rewarding, but I think the animals also serve almost as markers around which the characters have to navigate. I don't think that was something I did consciously. It just sort of happened. There is something jarring about seeing an animal out of place. There's a universal feeling of awe when you see an animal, particularly an impressive animal, out of place. Andrew, what's what's the oddest place you've seen an animal that like shouldn't be where it is? I mean, when I'm just walking around Philadelphia, and now I have become Uh acclimated to this, so it's less weird. But one night, I was just walking home from a bar, and a possum, like a full-grown possum, was just sitting on somebody's porch. Sure. And I was like, you don't go there. Yeah, okay. What's what's your deal? Uh Uh-huh. 
So didn't love didn't love that. Didn't love that. Have you ever mm-hmm. seen a? There was one time I saw a tortoise in the mm-hmm. city. A oh. guy claimed to be selling it, but it wasn't. But he also claimed that he found it. Like he what? He didn't just show up with it. I I don't know if finders keepers applies to tortoises. <laughs> no, like, can you own a tortoise? <laughs> Not really. I don't think you can. I was also thinking about this when Laura and I were in Amsterdam. We just turned a corner, and there were two like. I don't know if they were egrets or cranes or herons just like standing on someone's car like this is our car now. <laughs> and it was not a large street like I'm used to like, you know, America. We got our big old streets with our big old SUVs, you know, yeah, it's like a Ford <laughs> F-150. It's a winding uh, like cramped old european street and these birds had laid claim to it and huh. everyone was crossing the street <laughs> away from them Na- nature is healing it was because as well as when you see an animal like that and i think this is what she's getting to it you're like i don't know what my relationship to this creature is supposed to be well and i have two i have two other examples one example is anytime i see any bug in my house <laughs> this is my house this is not a bug house this is not a bug's house. And then the other example is when we went to the Philadelphia Zoo and they just got peacocks walking around. And I it's like, do are love you, that. Are you, par- are you part of, do you go here or are you just a free range peacock who has wandered onto the campus? There's a really lovely sculpture garden in New Jersey um, that's mm. really big, wonderful grounds, lots of cool art and sculptures there they also have some peacocks and peacocks just run around over there and i sometimes feel bad for the statues and the art because like you'll just see like 30 people being like check out that bird it's near the cafe what yeah are we somebody do? worked really someone worked really hard on that statue for a, a stupid bird to upstage it <laughs> it's so weird um but so the 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 story in the book that is most relevant to this quote that we're discussing is like the beginning kernel of Natalia and her grandfather's relationship as the rest of the book is concerned. So again, as I said, the setup, she's doing this vaccination effort across the border. She's just found out her grandfather's dead. Um, her grandmother has been like, was like, ah, they didn't bring his stuff. Like he died in this town. That's like, far away and weird and i don't know why he was there he claimed he was visiting you but you don't seem to know about it and also none of his stuff's with him like they they don't have his wallet or his his wedding ring or so like i need you to find out if somebody stole his stuff and she is thinking back to how when she was really little they had this tradition of going to the zoo together and then when she became a teenager, she was kind of bored of it. And like, Grandpa, this is lame. And then they got back, you know, they became kind of friends again after that story of the the guy who had come to the house to like check in on him. And now she's like protective of her grandpa. He takes her out in the middle of the night because someone is bringing an elephant through the streets of the town and bringing it to the zoo. It's in like the middle of the night. No one else is around. There's a guy leading an elephant down the street. And (laughs) it's just like one of those things. Trying to sell it? it (laughs) No, they found it at like a decrepit circus. And now they're going to rehab it and bring it to the zoo. Like you do, I guess. Yeah. And he just. Help me rehome my elephant, please. And he just wanted to like share this moment with her. And he is like, listen like 
and she's like, no one's going to believe this, that we saw this elephant. And he's like, you shouldn't tell anyone about this anyway. This is one of those cool stories that you just have in your life. And it's for you. Uh, he says, think for a moment. It's the middle of the night. Not a soul anywhere in the city at this time. Not a dog in the gutter empty except for this elephant. You're going to tell your idiot friends about it. Do you think they'll understand it? Do you think it will matter to them? And she's like, whoa, grandpa, what's whoa. <laughs> <laughs> And then he goes on, and this is like a a beat that jumped out to me. Um, He says, we're in a war. The story of this war, dates, names, who started it, why, that belongs to everyone. Not just the people involved in it, but the people who write newspapers, politicians thousands of miles away, people who've never been here, uh, never even been here or heard of it before. But something like this, this is yours. It belongs only to you and me, only to us. And I know that uh, Albert has said, like, the the relationship with her own grandfather is certainly the emotional autobiographical element to the book. But there's not, like, he was not a doctor. I don't think she ever saw an elephant with him in the street, necessarily. No, I'm not not saying that every single thing in this book happened to them. Like, I I know that the the mother and maternal grandparents and no dad situation is autobiographical. Yes. Yes. Um, I know the grandfather dying part is autobiographical. I know the general like part of the world that the story happens in is autobiographical, but, but beyond, beyond that, no, I don't think that this happened, but this like you and I are sharing an experience and it is incredibly potent and it will, connect us forever sort of thing like that feels emotionally true whether or not it is factually true i don't know if albert would tell us that this happened if it was true um and she asks if he has any other stories like that and that's how we get these two core tales of the book which i heard i don't know if anything that you read about her came up andrew uh, her background in like writing short fiction. I watched a, no. a PBS NewsHour interview with her where she was talking about writing a lot of short stories before she cracked her first novel. And this feels like she had a couple goods. She'd been like workshopping some good ones that turned out to need a larger home. Um, this this story of the deathless man. And the tiger's wife. And sure. Natalia tells us that those are the two stories that help her understand her grandfather. Uh, over the course of the book, you get three instances of the Deathless Man story that he tells her multiple times throughout their life. And then it becomes clear that she is like talking to all the people of the town where he grew up, Galena. Uh, and they are telling her the story of the tiger's wife, which has a couple of nested stories within it. Um, so I want to do like overviews of both of those, and that could probably cover what we're going to talk about in the book. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the Deathless Man is a guy that Grandpa met in 1951, or I think I have the date okay. here somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, is it super important? It's, it's important that, that you meet. It's important that we encounter the deathless man like decades apart each time. So it's like the fifties, okay. the seventies and the nineties. And was he, a, was he a grown man in the fifties or was he like a baby boomer? Yeah. Well, he was a 30 year old man in 1954. Okay. And grandpa's a young doctor. He's been sent to this town with his friend, Dominic, 
um, and they're going to do some healing probably. They've heard there's something going on there. It's like, I don't really know. It sort of seems like some kind of Sherlock Holmes. you like, go in there and solve the medical mystery. Like something's going on in this little town. You got to get in there and help them. But you don't mm. really have all the information going in. Okay. So he gets there. So it's there. an episode of House. <laughs> yes, it is. Ooh, this would make a good episode of House. Um, <laughs> he, he goes to the town. Did they do a magical realism episode of House? Oh, that show ran man. for a long time. Listen, I bet they did. I just watched a magical realism episode of The O.C. and my brain oh, is geez. broken. Oh, boy. Season four of The O.C. is bad. Anyway, <laughs> uh, he meets his contact in this village. And everyone in the village, it seems like everyone in the village has a cough. Oh, nobody's well in this village. And so mm-hmm. Grandpa's like, okay, this is probably like a TB outbreak. Like, we're going to have to quarantine this place and, like, get some vet- get some medicine in here or something. And the conduct is like, listen, I need you to know that a guy who died the other day woke up at his funeral and everyone's freaked out about it. Like, he sat up in his coffin while we were carrying his coffin and he asked, for, he asked for some water, and then everyone freaked out, and one guy shot him in the back of the head twice. Whoa, okay. Like well, a I mean, that's convenient, because you already got the coffin. You've already got everybody all gathered together. Uh-huh. Like, just have, really, a, it's, just have it's funeral part two. It's rude of him not to be dead. <laughs> yes, it at is. This point. Rude and scary. Yeah. And so... Dominic and Grandpa are like, well, I guess we got to go check out this casket, which has been like padlocked and extra nailed shut because uh, people are so scared now. <laughs> I guess you do that if you were really scared of the person being alive still and not happy about them being alive. Still. Correct. Correct. Because he's not from the town. He just showed up one day. He they found his oh, okay, body. So they're, this is, they're scared of an immigrant. They're not scared of a zombie. <laughs> well... Not I don't but I don't think that it's that necessary. They're scared of a stranger. Okay. Is is what is implied. They found him But it's it's more that than that he he may be undead. It, well it's definitely uh, no, it's more that he's undead. Because they found him floating it's in the like lake. It's like sixty forty undead. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they found him floating in the lake and they're like, Well, that's strange. We're gonna mm-hmm. bury him, or I guess we're gonna give him a funeral. Oh no, he's a zombie. We're gonna shoot him and lock him back up and we're gonna ask the doctor about it. And Grandpa, uh, they are they go walk up to the casket and they hear someone ask for water from inside the casket. So they're like, "Oh dang, he's not dead. We gotta get him out of there." Oh. And they bust it open. Dude sits up, and they're like, "I can touch the bullets in your head, man. Like, what is? You should stop moving." Um, the guy's like, "Hey, my name's Gavo. Like, can you get me some water?" Uh, Gavrin Gaillet, Gaillet, I think his name is, but he goes by Gavo or Gavrin. Mm. And he's like, hey, um, I'm thirsty and I cannot die. I just need you to know that. And they're like, well, that's kind of, I don't know if that's What are you, a a man on Twitter? (laughs) (laughs) And he says, I'm not allowed my uncle won't let me, and he's like, I, and he's like, I know that doesn't really make sense, and you probably wouldn't believe what I have to say about my uncle because you don't believe that I can't die, but that's the deal. Um, and Dominic, the Hungarian guy, like gets out of there. He's like going to go get some medical supplies, and so Grandpa is alone 
with Gavrin, the Deathless Man. And Gavrin's like, hey, let's have some coffee. I'll prove to you that I'm not going to die. And he pulls out this cool little cup out of his jacket pocket. And they have some coffee. And in Grandpa's coffee, there's like coffee grits in the bottom of the cup. Right. And he's like, hey, so that's how, you you know, that shows that you're mortal. And then I'm going to drink my coffee and there's no grits at the bottom. It's like there was never coffee in the cup at all. And oh, I thought it was like zombies drink the grits. No. Like, <laughs> well, okay. Grandpa's like, this is a magic trick, or you just ate the grits or something. Like, this doesn't make any sense. He's like, well, why don't we bet on it? Like, why don't we bet that I don't die? And Grandpa's. I do that every day. At that point, Grandpa's so confused and engrossed. He's like, let's go for it. I'm going to put cinder blocks on your feet. I'm going to chain the cinder blocks to your feet. You're going to walk into the lake. I am going to tie a rope to you so that when you do start to drown, you can like pull on it and maybe I can get you out of there because I don't actually want to kill you, but I do need you to try to die in front of me. <laughs> and it goes all night. The dude is in the lake for hours and grandpa kind of loses it a little bit. He's scared and worried. And because well, maybe he, he killed somebody who wasn't he, dead yes, before. Exactly. And uh, no, Gavron walks out of the other side of the lake, having, I guess, undone his shackles and waves from the other side of the lake. He's like, hey, man, um, remember our wager. I, I bet you my cup. You bet me your favorite copy of the Jungle Book that you carry everywhere. Next time I see you, you owe me that book. And then he just leaves and just walks away. I mean, I bet if you were under water in a river for hours your open gunshot wounds would probably get wicked infected i don't know if he gets yeah he doesn't it doesn't sound like part of his zombie thing but he did tell us that the reason they he was dead in the first place is that someone tried to kill him for telling him that he was gonna die okay which becomes important when we meet him a second time in the 70s at a village 1970s? 1970s okay and he hasn't aged a bit still looking fresh faced 30 years old is he keeping up with the times like style wise and like lingo wise <laughs> question uh it's not commented on i have to imagine we're seeing him through the ages so i know Perhaps. this was a thing in that um the Anne rice vampire book yes eventually the vampire just got tired of of keeping current <laughs> yes um, style kills the vampires <laughs> this um this small village has a waterfall where people are seeing the virgin mary so people start flocking to it because it's a miracle town all sorts of sick people are going there and so grandpa's called in to provide some care for these sick people and also like some tourists are coming in and they're getting drunk and the only place where people can sleep is in this church so they keep all the drunk people in the basement like locked up so that they don't cause trouble and hurt anybody else. Okay. Um, and that's where our grandpa doctor finds the deathless Gavrin. Um, and he's like, hey, uh, can I have some water? And they're talking through like a hole in the wall. And grandpa's like, yo, are you the same guy from the lake? He's like, yeah, you still owe me that book? <laughs> Jeez. And this is where we get into the, the origins, I guess, of the deathless man. And... Uh, Albrecht said that this is based on a Slavic Germanic like character of folklore that she has put in some other stories when she was uh, before she wrote this book and then this kind of she put it in here because she she wanted grandpa to like 
confront death personified, basically. Uh huh. Like you do. Mm-hmm. And no, that's a normal. That's normal. So this is how this is how the deathless man works, Andrew. He his uncle is death. His uncle is death. Oh, okay. So that's like your uncle who works at Nintendo who gets you access to all the games. Like yes. my uncle is death, so I don't die. He, correct. Well, mm, okay. No, he was he 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 turned sixteen, and he his uncle was like, "What do you want for your birthday?" And uh, Gavo says, hey, could I be like a really good physician, like a really good doctor? And Uncle Death is like, hey, what if you could know exactly if someone was going to die or not? Like with utter certainty, you can know if someone's going to die. And he's like, that sounds pretty cool. That would help me as a doctor. I actually. OK. Uh-huh. Sure. Yes, exactly. But then, That's, but mm-hmm. Wouldn't you have to explain it to people? Well, here's when how you, it works. When you when you decide. Oh, I'm not. No, I'm not going to save this guy. Like, first, do no harm except to this guy because he's going to die anyway. Well, so it's interesting. It's not. He's not condemning people to. It's more. He just has the power to know, like how close That's, they are to death. I don't understand how that doesn't become a self fulfilling prophecy. Honestly, he he's mostly doing it. Hmm. Y- yeah. Did I did I make a compelling point? No, you did. Well, and so like the, the his relationship to it changes over over his deathless life. So the way that it works, the mechanics of this is that he has this magic coffee cup in his pocket that he mm-hmm. can pull out and uh he will like kind of know people that are close to death and so he'll go and give them like a coffee reading. If the person is sick but not dying, I, the paths in the coffee will be still and constant is what it says. I think that's, I don't know what that is. It's like the way the coffee's like moving in the cup or the way yeah, that the... Yeah, no, I, I, I have a vague idea of what that means. Yeah, and then it, if if it's like that, then you break the cup and you send the drinker on his way. He's not going to die anytime soon. But if he is coming to Uncle Death, the paths will point away from the drinker and the cup must remain unbroken until that person dies. And so it's working out for him because he's giving people certainty about death. And this is a big thing that I think the book is interested in is like people are scared of not knowing whether or not they're going to die. They're mm-hmm. scared of, oh, I'm feeling sick. I'm, I, might be mo- I might be like mortally sick. Should I have done something differently? What time do I have left? And so the way that this guy Gavo had framed it early on is he's like, well, I'm giving them the gift of knowing either way. And people seem to like it. Mm -hmm. Um, He meets a woman who doesn't want to die and resists his finding. And it's the first person he's really encountered like this. So he sort of falls in love with her. And so he decides, (laughs) he decides not to go with the cup rules and he breaks the cup for her and it makes Uncle Death mad. And he, Uncle Death's like, I'm going to forgive you this time, but be careful. He does it again. And Uncle Death's very mad. And he's like, you will never uh, find this again. And the woman this dies. Well, what? he thinks that it's like he will never find someone that he can love again or anything like that. No. Then he learns he will never die. And it starts to become... The oh, I mm, I would re- I would really rather not be immortal. I would really prefer that my uncle would let me die. Hmm. 
So now he... It's kind of a inverted Emily Dickinson pose. <laughs> it is! <laughs> uh, so he is now like attracted to places where the sick are or where there might be conflict and where people are going to die because he hopes that he will see his uncle and his uncle will forgive him. But it has yet to work. And so he and the grandpa kind of have this back and forth about like, like what you were just saying, Andrew, like, is it good to know or not? Sure. Um, he does predict accurately the next three people that are going to die that night in 1971. And so grandpa leaves this encounter being like, I guess maybe that guy's for real. I don't, mm, I don't like it. Um, Cause there was a part where he's like, why do you break the cup every time? Like, where do you get the other cup? And he's like, it just, there's just another one in my pocket and <laughs> you wouldn't believe me, but that's just how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one, um, just as the war is beginning, grandpa goes to where his, where he spent his honeymoon, I think, and he wants to be in this town one last time before it's going to like be bombed into smithereens. And he's at this hotel, and he runs into the Deathless guy again. And they, the Deathless guy's perspective has changed. He doesn't tell people anymore. He just kind of wants to be near them when it happens. Mm-hmm. There's this like waiter who really, he's just an amazing waiter. He loves waiting on people. He loves serving people stuff so much. He's so good at it. And... He's definitely going to die in this bombing. Mm-hmm. And Grandpa's like, well, why don't you tell him? He's like, I don't I don't believe in that anymore. I think that when... He spit in my food lines. <laughs> so I'm just going to let it ride. He's like, uh, when when sudden... He's like, he at this point, um, Death's nephew <laughs> has come to the realization that there is some benefit to the suddenness of death that... You don't have time to mourn your life as you're losing it, that you don't have time to be sad about what's going to come after you uh, and what you're going to miss or not be a part of. Sure. Um, And so he kind of gives this elegy to the notion of uh, a swift passing that is unforeseen. Um, So, And I don't think that Albrecht is like passing a judgment on any of these interpretations. It's kind of just presenting scenes where grandpa has to deal with the point of view of someone who can see death. Literally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I've, I have largely avoided thinking about my mortality in the last 13 months specifically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I was just, I don't know that I have a specific... I feel like I don't do anything else. I feel like (laughs) that's all I do is contemplate my own mortality. It's the basis for every decision I've made for since like last March. It sucks. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. And and like, listen, that's that went into a lot of my decision making before, just like when I'm like crossing streets and like, is this food too old to eat or whatever? But sure, sure. Now it's it's much more part of the calculus of like literally everything that I'm deciding to do like day to day. Yeah. Anyway. No, no, I I think and I, I feel like this book will hit for certainly it, it might hit folks who do not have a lot of familiarity with like the Balkan conflict in a in a very different way if they're reading it now in 2020, 2021. Um, mm-hmm. 
just because for me, I could not separate the the type of lives folks were leading or struggling to lead and their relationship to the great unknown, as it were, um, and how a lot of folks have have felt emotionally the past year. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. I don't think that's a reason to steer away from the book, but I do think that like that's, that's what I was experiencing. Um, sure, yeah. I do want to make sure we talk about the Tiger's Wife story because I've that is literally what the book is called. Um, Whoops, <laughs> whoopsie doodle. Uh, the okay, the Tiger's Wife story, as I said earlier, is like I don't know. It feels like a good collection of short stories, like turned into the spine of a novel. So mm-hmm. you were saying, Andrew, we were talking about the like, is this a magical realism? What do these folk stories do? And it starts with the bombed city and the tiger going into the woods. And it just so happens that those woods are near where the town, near the town where her grandpa has grown up as a little boy. Mm -hmm. And we meet all sorts of different people over the course of that story, each of whom gets, it's like a, she could have like tried to lay this out sequentially and even in it kind of unfolding chronologically as like, and this is the story of when the town learned there was a tiger and mm-hmm. it changed their lives forever. Um, she still like judiciously decides, okay, here's where I'm going to tell you the backstory of Luca the butcher who <laughs> uh, does suck. But let's tell you the backstory about how he used to not suck. Like, he sucked less, and now he's a tragic suck guy. Like, he just uh-huh. sucks. Um, Jeez. Well, he's an abusive husband of this, like, child bride that he didn't want to marry. And the woman he's married to, who does not have a name, though she becomes called the tiger's wife. Um, she is deaf and mute. And is fundamentally disconnected from originally her family or her Muslim family from the city. And now living in this small Christian village where people are feel like they don't know what to do with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this like lovely backstory of this guy, Luca, who learned to play this cool instrument called the gusla. That's like a single string fiddle. And he's writing sick poem songs. But he's hanging out with all these musicians who just want to get drunk all the time. And nobody gets his art. <laughs> And also his his family was abusive, so he left them behind. And he's um, he's gay, but he's not like out, and certainly doesn't want um, anybody persecuting him. And he f- develops a friendship with a woman uh, who is like the daughter of a merchant, daughter of a of a of a merchant in this city. And she's like, I don't want to ever be in a relationship with men because I don't ever want to be subject to that level of like uncertainty and potential volatility and not having control over my own life. Sure. And he's like, this sounds like we're going to be great friends because like I'm not interested <laughs> in ladies and you don't want anything to do with men. Like, let's hang out and talk about my art. And she's like, that sounds cool. And then they eventually kind of reach a plan where maybe they're going to get married and she realizes, and this is like a little character note, and this is like a character within the Luca story, within the Tiger's Wife story, so it's really nested down, where this woman is like, man, I spent my entire life wanting to avoid 
having my life controlled by like a man through marriage. And mm-hmm. now that I've finally reached this plan that I think will take care of that, it means my life is all laid out in front of me and I I don't know that I will ever get the chance to change my mind. And so I preemptively regret all the decisions and I'm going to run away from it. <laughs> and it's really handled really beautifully, but it does mean that her father is in disgrace and rather than suffer public embarrassment, he uh, takes his daughter, his other daughter, who is deaf and, and mute, and says, well, you have to marry her instead, guy. Like, here's what sure. we're going to do. Um, mm-hmm. And then he goes on to become very abusive of her. And um, as she is developing this clandestine relationship with this tiger, um, he doesn't like that, obviously, in that he meets a a suspicious but tragic end. Um, Suspicious and tiger-related end. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the, The story of the tiger's wife is wrapped up in the grandfather, like... His he's kind of a loner in the village. All of the kids his age died in like a one bad illness winter except for him. And mm-hmm. so he becomes apprentice to the apothecary who like saved his life. He's the one who he gives him the book of the jungle book. And so which I I found an interview with Aubrey where she was like, I don't yeah, the jungle book becomes this meaningful totem of the grandpa but i did just put it in early because i needed him to know what a tiger was even though he lived in a remote balkan village (laughs) that's actually a really good that's a really good reason to have that specific book in there because i I was about to ask if that if that aside from the tiger thing if it was really important that the book be the jungle book and no it seems like it's mostly just the tiger thing It, it does become there's like a sweet sweet is maybe not the right word it's the best word i have like like hey man that's freaking sweet no like like kind of oh that's sweet kind of heartwarming yeah it's not like 90s sweet um what is i don't know what that means anyway um where he is (laughs) he is now bonding he's like nine or ten at this age and he is bonding with um luca's wife the tiger's wife and she doesn't know how to read he's trying to like tell her the stories from the jungle book and he can never bring himself to tell the end of Shere Khan's story because it does involve the tiger dying. Mm-hmm. And he knows that she loves the tiger and has been feeding the tiger and is connected to it. Um, so he always changes the ending a little bit so that like Mowgli and Shere Khan like come to an armistice basically <laughs> and like okay. live to fight another. It's very like Saturday morning cartoon. Sure. Like yeah. Megatron the, gets away the kind of thing. young boy and the tiger. Yeah. The literal tiger uh-huh. develop a rapport and they manage to work out a, a treaty, a two-state yes. solution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the arc of this tales within a tale is that this community is like turning on this girl as she develops a relationship with this monster that they are very concerned about they bring in this guy called Darisa the bear who's like a taxidermist turned bear hunter who goes to (laughs) villages hunting what he says are problem bears which is a real turn of phrase if I've ever heard one I mean who gets to decide (laughs) agreed who's a problem bear um and there's a big showdown with him he has a whole I really liked his backstory we don't need to go into it here um and it closes with 
you know, that story has its end with the tiger's wife passing away at some point, but like the tiger might still be out there. Who knows? And at a certain point, it doesn't really matter because the town has this story of this tiger that is now part of their like communal lore. Um, and it has shaped their experience of, yeah, it's like some turning on each other, some coming together. Um, yeah, I really, I dug that. I also, and kind of jumping back to Natalia, and this will probably be kind of a good spot to close out, is like the big plot point that's happening in present tense, aside from the grandpa, is that in the town where she's doing this orphanage work, there's a group of people who are digging up a family member that they buried in this vineyard 12 years ago because mm-hmm. their whole village has gotten sick. And a lady said, it's cause you buried your cousin and we oh. never like gave him funeral rights. Okay. So you gotta go dig them back up. And, uh, there's this like legend of a, of a haunt in the village that is the creature that comes in the middle of the night and takes the things that you leave on gravestones, like as, as memorial kind of things. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're going to do the funeral rites there. So Natalia gets wrapped up in all of that. And ultimately it is about like, what are the physical totems you have left from people you've lost? What do you do to preserve them? What does it mean when you lose them? Um, and what stories do you tell to like, I don't know, make them to justify them and and metabolize them. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm a little far afield at this point because I just liked the book and I could just keep telling you individual spots fine. of no, the book. I think we without a just, shape. I think we could just wrap it up. You just say you liked it. Yeah, and that's in the end. You liked it. Yeah, I think so. Eight point five out of ten. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole stuff about being, well, there's a whole thing about being a doctor, uh, the the whole like elements of our two main characters having a calling for being a physician um, and the lessons that they learn about that calling. I think if you have a family member who is a doctor or you might want to be one yourself or something, like that, that stuff's going to really hit. I, I found sure. it really interesting about like, like what kind of righteous reasons drive you into that practice and then what mm-hmm. kind of realities you end up being confronted with. Boy, another weirdly relevant yep. thing that we're talking about. Okay, so let's let's end this way. I, I just thought of a way to end it. Okay. The NPR review of the book says uh was overall positive, um, as most reviews of it were at the time, but it says uh in terms of structure and pacing Obrecht still has a way to go. The conclusion of the novel comes at the reader too abruptly, leaving us startled. Uh, But her attention to detail in creating a believable world in spite of its magical elements is the work of a mature storyteller. Did you feel that it ended abruptly? Or did that not really register to you? Huh. Sometimes when I read negative reviews, like even if I didn't think of not even negative reviews, but just like criticism of something, even if I didn't think it at the time, I can be like, Oh yeah, I can see why you would think that, but you don't seem like you're getting there immediately. Uh, Not immediately though. I will say it like, it felt like she had a symbolic ending about the, um, the way that this tiger story is going to live on, like that she was going to work backwards from, but the, because the book is not like what I would call tightly plotted, 
That's not the <laughs> that's not the type of story it is, right? So I feel it's not like it's not a page turner. Not not in the classic sense, no. Um, yeah, because it is like weaving in and out of these different tales. Um, I do feel like if you were looking for like that kind of classic pop of like, oh, that's oh, we we got to that part. I'm so glad we got there. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't quite happen. There's okay. there's a character reveal that happens at the end of the people in the vineyard storyline. There's natural closes to the tiger's wife and the deathless man stuff. Um, and you get like a little bit of that. Uh, what's the, is it animal house where you get the, like, and this person went on to do this and this person. That, went that is the thing. I don't know if animal house originated it, but it's a movie where that does. Sure. Happen. Um, there's like a, there's like a paragraph or two that's sort of about that. And then it, zooms out a little bit more and it's like but tigers and, and so it does have a like i got to get to my ending image because i didn't write a story that 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 has that same rush to a to a formal ending i guess sure um, okay so i i feel like that is accurately diagnosed but i don't agree that it takes away from the book if if that okay. is what the reviewer is intending to say sure yeah yeah Okay. Well, Andrew, thanks for telling me about uh, your bugs and your mortality. <laughs> I mean, every week, that's what I bring. <laughs> I hate bugs and I'm going to die one day. <laughs> True words, never spoken. <laughs> um, if folks at home want to email us about impressive animals they've seen in places where impressive animals shouldn't be, you can do so at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter at overduepod. Uh, thanks to lots of folks uh, who told us what they were reading this week. Go check the feeds for that. Uh, Kate, Tom, Tabitha, Caitlin, Cody, Megan, Katya, Ingrid, Mike, Mario, Joyce, Ebony, lots of other people on Facebook and Twitter telling us what they're reading right now, which is pretty cool. Thanks to Nick Lorandis, who composed our theme song. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? Overduepodcast.com is the website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. Uh, We will have May's schedule up as soon as we figure it out. Uh, We also have links to Apple Podcasts, uh, Google, our RSS feed. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. Wherever you get fine podcasts. If you subscribe to Apple Podcasts, you rate and review us. And uh, we also have a Patreon page. uh, As Craig mentioned an hour ago, patreon.com slash overduepod. If you donate at a certain level, you can get a book onto our list, which we will read eventually, as the recommender of The Tiger's Wife noted. Yeah. Uh, You can also get uh, bonus episodes early and episodes of our long read projects early. Right now, that's Don Quixote by Miguel de Cervantes, as translated by Edith Grossman. We will have the next episode of our series, Jagged Little Mill, up for patrons sometime this week. Yeah, that's it. Um, like Andrew uh, said, check the feeds to see what we're reading in May. That's where it'll be. Yes. Yeah. Because we don't know yet, but we will know. Yeah. Soon. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Until we talk to you next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.